These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. The guns grew silent at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. After four years and three months of fighting, an armistice was declared and the World War I came to an end. It would not be until June the 28th, 1919 that the Treaty of Versailles would be signed with the official end of the war But the war ended with the end of all fighting on November the 11th, 1918. The world had been at war. In a scale that we had never seen before. It all had started among a few countries in Europe and then it spread across Europe. It would ultimately go into Africa and then to Asia and then the Far East and to the United States and to Canada Literally, the world had been at war. It was estimated that more than 70 million people had been mobilized for this war effort. 18 million people would die. 18 million people, soldiers and civilians. The amount of death, the amount of suffering, it spread far and wide. Technology changed the way that war would be fought forever. The airplane had only been invented about 10 years before. And yet the airplane was being used in World War I to fight. And then we figured out how to make guns shoot faster. And it was a machine gun. And then there was a new invention of a thing called a tank. And all this new technology being used in ways changed how the fighting was going on. And we weren't really sure what tactics to use with it. And so what got created was trench warfare. People dug in along a trench. There was a hundred miles, I mean, a hundred yards of probably open space and then another trench. And people were there and they would fight. And now and then they'd go over the top. And they'd go charging towards another person's line and then fall back. And then they would charge and fall back. It was not effective in terms of winning a war. It was very effective in killing people. It changed the way war would be fought. So many people, so many families, they all experienced such grief. So much so that it was in 1920 that there in England they decided to to create a a tomb of the unknown warrior. So many men did not come home. Husbands, fathers, sons, they did not come home. And they were simply buried, sometimes in unmarked graves. They were never identified. And the people of England wanted to be able to have somewhere to say, this is the grave. 
And so when we were on our trip on the Reformation tour a year ago, we went started in Germany and then we moved to England and we came to London. And one of the places I went was Westminster Abbey. I'd been at London before, but had never been there and went there. And when I came in, there I saw this beautiful black Belgium piece of marble and it was roped off by these stanchions and it was the tomb of the unknown warrior. Now, I'd, I'd really had never heard of that there in England before. But boy, when you stood there, you sensed this was holy space. It is the only grave there in Westminster. You know how they have all these graves and tombs throughout these wonderful old churches. And they have so many of the significant people in the history of England there buried in Westminster Abbey. And you can walk across anywhere you want to walk, except you can't walk across that grave. That tomb, nobody walks across. I did some research to learn a little more about how it had come to be, and it was really quite fascinating. It went all the way back to 1920, when it was decided that they should do this. And what they went and did was they exhumed four bodies from some of the worst battles, the biggest battles all over France of people who were never identified. They put them in coffins and then they brought them to a little chapel in the town of St. Paul there in France. They put them in this chapel. They draped them with a, um, a Union Jack flag. And then they got three officers and they said, you have to come in and decide which one of these, not knowing where they came from, which one of these will be taken to Westminster Abbey. And so they all finally agreed on one. The other three were reburied there in the cemetery in St. Paul. And then this other one was then shipped to England. When they got to English soil, it was put into a, a far nicer casket. And it was on November the 11th, 1920, that they placed it on a gun carriage that was horse-drawn and they begin to go through the streets of London. And tens of thousands of people lined the streets. For them, this was my father, my husband, my son, a friend. It was a national grieving. They came all the way to Westminster Abbey, and then they had a worship service. And then they buried this coffin, this, this casket, but they did it with 100 bags of soil from all the different battlefields all over France. And then they covered it in silk. And then they set this black granite, this black Belgian marble uh, as the marker. The lettering on top was made from shell casings of the ammunition in World War I. And I wanted to read you what it says. Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land, and buried here on Armistice Day, the 11th of November, 1920, in the presence of His Majesty King George V and a vast concourse of the nation. Thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the great war of 1914 to 1918 gave the most that man can give, life itself. For God, for king and country, 
for loved ones, home, and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. They buried him among the kings because he had done good towards God and towards his house. When they conducted the service, they put an honor honor guard around it and the people filed by in the thousands for days. Truly a national mourning like they had never seen before. Now, if you go home this afternoon and you watch any news, you're going to be hearing all about this 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, what was known as the Great War. And I'm sure that they will ultimately show this tomb of the unknown warrior there in Westminster Abbey, and you can be assured that it is going to be surrounded by poppies. Because poppies became the symbol of those who had died in World War I and would later become the symbol of all who had died serving their country down through the years. It was the poppy. The reason that that came about was because, as I told you, when they were fighting trench warfare and people were on both sides, then what happened was the land became just scorched. All the artillery shells, the people coming across, the fighting that was going on, it destroyed every living thing in no man's land. But then when the rains came in the spring, it's like the ground had been tilled. It had been kicked up. And when the rains came, all these wildflowers began to grow. And they were poppies, red poppies. And the poppies truly became symbols for all of those who had fought in the fields and died. They were red. The poppies were red. It was a symbol of their blood that had run in the fields because out of nowhere, these flowers began to spring up. So they became the symbol. Well, it was in 1915 that John McRae was there fighting in Flanders along with his friend Alexis Helmer. They were both Canadians. And they were fighting in Flanders, and it was in May of 1915 that Alexis was killed. John was a surgeon, and he was also in the artillery unit, and he was asked to conduct the funeral of his close friend. And he did, and there was so much grief over so many who were killed And it was said that after he was through, he went over and sat down on the back of a pickup truck looking across Flanders' fields and all of these red poppies thinking of all who had died and the blood that had run through the fields. And he sat down and wrote these words. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the lark still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. 
the poem was reprinted around the world and became a very popular poem, one of those who read it was Mona Michael. When she began to see the veterans coming home in America, she lived in New York, as she began seeing all the veterans come home from World War I, she saw how many were badly injured, wounded, struggling psychologically, physically, how many had financial needs. She wanted to do something to those who had served. And so she came up with the idea of having veterans make poppies and have them make poppies and then people could buy them and wear them to show their support and memory of those who had fought and died. And they became known as buddy poppies and they were made by veterans And then it went back to Europe and it caught on in Europe. And today they are still made quite often now at veterans hospitals or in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they are sold and the money is raised to help veterans who have been wounded, hurt, or in need. But Mona also went beyond that. She wound up writing a poem in response to Flanders Fields. And she would say, O you who sleep in Flanders fields, sleep sweet to rise anew. We caught the torch you threw, and holding high we keep the faith with all who died. We cherish too the poppy red that grows on fields where valor led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies, but lends a luster to the red of the flowers that bloom above the dead in Flanders' fields. And now the torch and poppy red we wear in honor of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught. We'll teach the lessons that ye wrought in Flanders' fields. I've been working on this sermon now for several months, knowing this anniversary was coming. We have been planning this service, this 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. And when I read this poem a long time ago, it's the line that caught me out of all this different research I did that has always been making me think. And it's what I hope you would go home this afternoon and think. We'll teach the lessons that she wrought in Flanders' fields. What are the lessons from Flanders' fields? You and I have come together today on this sacred and holy day to remember. To remember and to give thanks for those who served and those who died. But we have also come to commit ourselves to always working for peace. We have come because we care as the disciples of Jesus Christ. And we know that what we do makes a difference. This morning, I want to conclude this sermon series. What we do makes a difference. What we do matters. For six weeks, we have been looking at this subject, that what we do matters. And I want us to close by looking at this scripture today, because part of the scripture in our scripture lesson is what you find written on the side of the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. It is where Jesus does say, 
A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. A greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Jesus said this on the night of the Last Supper, Thursday night. On Friday, he would lay down his life for his friends, for his enemies, for you and me. And so what are the lessons learned? What is the commitment we make? Because someone laid down their life for us. As we think about it this morning, there's really two things that I want to share. First of all, I believe you and I come together today to remember, to commit, to never forgetting that freedom is not free To understand in this world there is tyranny, there is evil. In this world there is hatred and prejudice and injustice. And sometimes that is so great we have to fight. When you go back and look at what would happen with Hitler... I mean, it's terrible that we had World War I. It was the war to end all wars. It was called the Great War, not World War I then. It was the Great War, the war to end all wars. And at the Treaty of Versailles, we put such harsh restrictions on Germany that there was no hope, their economy tanked, people were starving. It was the French who wanted revenge, and they got it. And it set the scene for someone to come along and give them hope. And that person happened to be Hitler. And he came along to give them hope. And telling them that what their problems were were not caused by them. It was caused by everybody else. And as he began to say it's caused by everybody else. Look at the Jews. Look at the people who are doing this. He rallied the people around a hatred of other people and said the Aryan people were the special people of the world. Only us and all these other people are bad. He rallied the people on hatred and prejudice. And what I'm seeing is that we are called as people sometimes to stand up to hatred To stand up to prejudice, when you look and see what happened with Hitler, how they created these concentration camps, six million Jews would be sent to their death. Five million other people would be sent to their death. Eleven million people in the concentration camps. There is sometimes evil and tyranny. And sometimes you have to fight. However, I do believe there is so much that you and I can commit to do before it ever gets to that point where we have to fight. There are the things that we can do right now to stand up to hatred and prejudice and and the marginalization of other people. We can do it now so that we don't have to go to war to where we hear the command of Jesus to love your neighbor, to love one another as I have loved you. It really is about you and I making the decision as the disciples of Christ that when we come across prejudice and hatred, that we speak up about it now. 
in your neighborhood, at your job, in your community, wherever you encounter it, we are called to be the people who share God's love. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. It's how you and I work for peace in the moment. I told you that this whole sermon series really was inspired by a trip that the executive team made to the Holocaust Museum. And we had wandered through all of the Holocaust Museum, seeing what had happened and how Hitler had come to power and, and then all that had taken place to create World War II. And when you come to the end, you come to a statement by a man named Martin E. Moeller. Martin E. Moeller, he had been a, a, a German soldier. And when he got out of the service, he became a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And in 1933, he supported Hitler. Someone needed to give them hope to pull them up. And, and so he supported Hitler. And then three years into it, they begin to see, wait a minute, we're talking about the Aryan culture and how we're all special and everybody else is bad. And 800 pastors came together and signed a document, the confessing church, saying that what is being told to us by Hitler is not Christian. Well, that got him and about 799 other pastors put into a concentration camp. He would be there for seven years. He was lucky to escape being executed. But he would make a statement that is printed on the wall now in the Holocaust Museum. You see it when you come to the end. For as Martin E. Moeller who said, First they came for the socialist and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. They came for the trade unionist and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. They came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. It's important for you and I to be the people who rise up and speak out against prejudice and hatred. And we do it now so we don't have to go to war. We look for the face of Christ in humanity and all the people around us who are different from us, who may look different from us, who come from different countries than us. We are all still God's children. It was in 1928 that Eric Remark wrote a book. 1928, 10 years after World War I had ended. The publishers were afraid maybe this wouldn't resonate with people. It was a huge success. Eric had been a soldier in World War I. He had fought in the trenches. As a German, he lived through it. He saw what happened. And when he came home, he felt so disconnected from society, he struggled terribly. So he wrote this novel. He did not write it from, as a true story. It was a novel, but it was all through his experiences. He is able to say, this is what it was like. He called his book, All Quiet on the Western Front. It was published in 1928, and in 18 months, it sold two and a half million copies, was translated into 22 languages. It went wild as people read this book. And it had such moving scenes. There was one where he talks about how you go over the top, and they went across no man's land, and people are being shot, and he jumps into a foxhole to 
avoid the gunfire and he's hiding in a foxhole when suddenly an American soldier jumps in that foxhole and he takes out his knife and he stabs and kills him. He bleeds to death beside him. And when he is dead, he reaches into his coat and he pulls out pictures of this man's wife and his children. And suddenly he looks at this man very differently and he says, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to kill you. I did not want to kill you. If you would jump in here again and not hurt me, I would not hurt you. I didn't want you to die. Now, it was this very moving scene. And it helps you to suddenly see the enemy in a whole new way. So much so is it so powerful. In 1933, when Hitler came to power, one of the first books he banned was All Quiet on the Western Front. One of the first books he had burned was All Quiet on the Western Front. Because it didn't glorify war, it told it like it was. It helped you to see the enemy as your brother, not as the enemy. He couldn't have that. I remember when I was in high school, it was my English teacher who had us read All Quiet on the Western Front. But she didn't tell us any kind of background. She just said, read this and be ready by next week. And I went home and started reading through it. And I was halfway through the book before I realized this was being told from the German point of view. And so for the first half of the book, I'm rooting for the soldier who's German. And I didn't realize I was rooting against the Americans because I was rooting for the German. And that's exactly what she wanted to have happen. She wanted us to experience, what does it mean to read this and understand you're feeling what the Germans are feeling, what was what we were feeling? It was a powerful experience. I never forgot it. Years later, you remember how we went to Russia and helped to start a church. And we were there in Ulyanovsk, which is the home uh, birthplace of Vladimir Lenin. And we'd started several churches. And I, I was going back in the 90s on a regular basis to make sure the church was up and going. I, I was there on one Sunday morning and got to preach there at the church. It was always an incredible experience. And And that day I told him about my experience with All Quiet on the Western Front. Reading the book, talking about the story in the foxhole, how people should react. What does it mean for us to hear Jesus say, a new commandment I give you, to love one another. I got through with the sermon and I stood around and I was shaking hands with people who had come. We had a number of guests. Two women came up who were guests. And they came up and said, we are new to Ulyanovsk. We have recently arrived. We heard there was a Methodist church. We are working with Campus Crusade for Christ. And we'll be here for the next couple of years. We are German. I wasn't expecting that. I said, we are German. And we just have to tell you, we thought your sermon this morning was very interesting. <laughs> I said, you got to come home for lunch. I didn't bother to ask the pastor. I said, we're going home for lunch. And so we went to their house and, and we sat around the table and we broke bread. Russians, Germans, Americans. And there was this incredible bonding with one another because we all knew the call of Christ. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. 
to see humanity in the face of others, those who are supposed to be the enemy can be the people you choose to love. It's what you and I are called to do in our world today. Wherever we confront it, we speak up. For as we choose to speak up, it keeps us from ever going to war if we help to confront those things now. The truth of the matter is, what you do matters. And so secondly, I believe what we learn is that you and I are called to commit to share God's love and bring hope in this world. It's really that simple and that profound. It's what we've been talking about for six weeks. And everything we've been going through, it's all been about, can we share God's love and bring hope to the world? It's because you and I know when Jesus said, a greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends, he was about to go and lay down his life for you and me. You and I have experienced the grace of Christ. It's what gives us hope. Hope in the darkest of nights. And because you and I have hope in Christ, we now want to put ourselves in the hands of Christ to be used to go share that love, to bring hope in the world. It is our commitment. It's how you and I work for peace because we've experienced the gift of God's grace. We go share and let God use us to share His love and bring hope in the world. As I said, I've been working on this series and this sermon for several months now, and I, when I got to thinking all about it, I couldn't help but think about one of my favorite movies that really dealt with World War I. And it's one of the, I think, finest movies ever made. It was called Bagger Vance. Now, I got to talking to lots of different people. I've been running a survey, and it's amazing how many people have not seen the movie Bagger Vance. If you have not seen the movie Bagger Vance, go home this afternoon and watch it. If you have seen it, my guess is a long time ago, you need to go home and watch it again. I hadn't seen it in years. Marsh and I sat down, we watched it, and I'm going, absolutely. It was such a powerful story. It was done by Robert Redford. Robert Redford was the director. He did it 18 years ago in the year 2000. And what I thought was fascinating, I saw his commentary afterwards as the director, and he made the comment. He said, you know, I wanted to do this movie because it seems like our society is becoming angrier and more cynical and harsh with one another, and we need something. And I'm going, that was 18 years ago. Bagger Vance. What it really is about is a man named Randolph Juna. He is from Savannah, Georgia. He's a wonderful golfer. But it's 1914. The world goes to war. And he begins to lead a group of young men from Savannah, Georgia, who volunteer. They go to Europe to fight World War I, to fight the Great War, the war to end all wars. And he leads these young men from Savannah. And one day they come out of the trenches and go over the top. And all of his friends, they're all shot down. He hears the cries and the groans and the moans, and he survives. He comes home and he's hailed as a hero. But he doesn't feel like a hero. He can't fit back into society. He can't play golf. He had been in love, but now he doesn't feel loved or lovable. And he just begins to drink and a decade will go by. The struggle that he finds himself in. 
Now, you may think this is all about golf, but it's not about golf. Golf is simply a metaphor for life. And he's having to try to figure out how do you play the game. Well, they decide they want to have a wonderful competition, an exhibition there in Savannah. They get Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen, who were the two real characters, greatest golfers in America at that time, to come and to play in a golf tournament. And they want someone to represent Savannah. And they go to, uh, to Randolph June and say, would you play to represent Savannah? He hadn't played golf in 12 years. And so one night he goes out and he starts hitting some balls into the dark to see could he still possibly find his swing. And out of the dark, suddenly here comes this man. He's played by Will Smith. And he is this mystical, spiritual guide. He will be a caddy. And he comes walking out straight at Juna. And Juna says, what are you doing out there? I could have killed you. And he said, oh no, sir, I was standing right in front of you. It seemed like the safest place as I was watching you hit those balls. And so begins this relationship. I'll be your caddy. And the rest of the movie is all about the lessons that this caddy needs to teach. And you come to understand that really this is supposed to be God. God has come to Juna to guide him back into the game of life. And it's all the important lessons everybody needs to learn. But you come near the end of the show, and to me, the critical scene was when Juna came up, and they were kind of be heading off. It was getting close, and he hits a drive. He slices, and it's so far out in the woods. I understood exactly how to hit that shot. It was out in the woods. I mean, deep in the woods. And everybody moans, and he goes walking to go find his ball in the woods. And he comes into this place, it's got a canopy over it, and it's so dark. And suddenly he has a flashback and he starts hearing the guns and the tanks and the cries of those who are dying. And he begins to shake. He sees his ball and he starts to reach down to pick up his ball, which will disqualify him from this game again. And as he gets close, suddenly he hears a voice from Bagger Vance saying, would you need a different club, Mr. Juna? He doesn't pick it up. And finally, it is Bagger who says, it's time for you to come out of the shadows. I don't know how. You have to choose to begin. I can't. Yes, you can. Because you're not alone. I'm here with you. I've always been here. It's time for you to play the game again. Your game. The game that was just for you. The game that was given to you when you came into this world. Now get your stance and take your club. Settle yourself. And I want you to hit it with everything you've got. And you're thinking, how can he hit it? This whole thing is just covered in trees. And then you look at a distance and you see this small hole into the daylight. And Juna settles himself and he hits the ball. And it goes right through that one small hole into the light. It lands on the green and rolls a few feet away from the cup.
He's back in the game. And I thought, that's what it is for all of us. There is the light. The light of Christ that calls us out of the shadows, back into the game, and gives us hope. Now we are the ones who have caught the torch. We are the ones who carry the light into the darkness. We are the ones who help us to go into the future to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We can do this because we know that what we do matters. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.